0: Beloved, turn to Genesis 16. Our reading today is Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and God, help us now as we come to hear your word. Grant that by your Holy Spirit, through the merits of Jesus Christ, that we would recognize the authority of your word as yours. That we would be humbled under it that we would be lifted up by it. And Lord, if it is the case that there are any among us here who are yet dead in their sins and trespasses, who are not yet united to the Savior by faith, may this even be their day of salvation. We pray that it would please you to move and work among us in such a way by your Holy Spirit through your Son and, and build up and encourage and strengthen the faith of all believers here, Lord, by your very voice. Help us, we pray. Help us attend to it, understand it, believe it, and indeed take responsibility for it and see our lives reformed to your pleasure and to our great enjoyment of you. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress. And submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and every one's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is God's word. One way to very briefly explain the Christian faith is to say that God has brought life into a world where there was once only deadness. God has brought life into a world where there was once only deadness. Now, this brief statement allows you to go on in all the right directions. It allows you to start to unfold and and open up all the right truths about Christ and man's great need for Christ. The deadness of the world is because of sin. Because of sin, man can no longer seek God. His eyes are dead. Because of sin, man can no longer obey the commands of God. His will is dead. Because of sin, man can no longer love God. His heart is dead. Sin is the source of the moral and spiritual deadness that has covered and darkened the whole world of men. Paul puts this all very well in a short phrase in Ephesians 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We all know that death is a separation from life. God is life. Sin kills and separates man from God. But being dead is only half the truth. God has brought life into a world where there was once only deadness. We are now talking about the divine son. Jesus Christ. He is the life which has come into our world of deadness. He is the eternal life who was always with the Father, but he was made manifest to us and dwelled among us. Why? So he might put an end to the deadness that ruled the race of men and put an end to it by his own death, death on a cross. Only a supernatural person who came into our world from outside our deadness could successfully offer himself up for us in death and destroy death. This is why Jesus, the Son of God, was sent. Nothing, beloved, nothing from within the world of man's deadness could rescue man from his guilt and condemnation. Something from outside had to come and rescue us, someone from outside had to come. And that supernatural person and his life-giving work is the very heart of our Christian faith. Now, what does this have to do with Hagar and Sarai and Abram and Ishmael? Well, it is really quite simple. In these four lives, we see what happens when the children of God forget they have been reconciled by God's grace to God's power through God's Son. Let me say it another way. Because the object of our faith is a supernatural person, Jesus Christ, our faith only takes root and grows by trusting in God's supernatural power To accomplish in us and through us all that his holy will desires to accomplish. God's supernatural power is no longer against us, it is for us, it has been reconciled to us through the death and resurrection of Christ. So the Christian does not serve God by better organizing, better manipulating, better controlling the fallen things of this world. The Christian serves God by looking unto God, crying out to God, waiting upon God, surrendering their plans to God, all in the name of Jesus, the supernatural reconciler. So here's Sarai, the wife of Abram, a barren woman. She cannot bear children. There is a deadness in her womb. Sarai recognizes this is a problem, and she is right. It is a problem because God had promised her husband Abram that he would have many offspring like the stars of heaven. It was a promise to be fulfilled by God's grace and by God's power. And that is the reason God had specifically said to Abram, your very own son shall be your heir. That was in the previous chapter, Genesis fifteen four. This meant Abram's nephew Lot was not going to be the heir. This meant that Abram's personal servant Eliezer was not going to be the heir. A son from Abram's own body would be born. And that son would have a son. And so on and so on, and eventually an offspring of Abram would take possession of the whole world and share it with everyone who had the same faith Abram had. But Sarai was barren. Now what should have happened is not what did happen. What should have happened is that Abram should have looked to the power of God. Now he will do so later as his faith matures. But here his faith is weak, young, unstable. Abram should have looked to the power of God to accomplish all that needed to be accomplished. If that had happened, then at the end of verse 2, Abram would have prayed to God. But instead of praying, Abram listened to the voice of his wife. Now, how do we know prayer should have happened? Well, because years later, Abram and Sarah's son Isaac finds himself with the exact same problem. His wife, Rebekah, is barren. If Isaac and Rebekah do not have a son, the promise that God had made to Abram That one of his offspring would one day take possession of the whole world and share it with everyone who had the faith of Abram would never come to pass. Isaac and Rebekah need a son. But by God's grace, Isaac does not make the mistake his father is making in chapter 16. Listen to what Genesis 25 verse 20 says. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Think about it for a moment. Isaac's mature faith saved us a whole nother chapter 16. Isaac had learned that the promise of God to overcome the curse and the deadness of sin and make the whole world new was not going to come by human calculation and human striving. It was going to come by the power of God, a divine power which Isaac knew he had been reconciled to by grace. And so he enjoyed that divine power through prayer. His father and mother, however, years earlier had a, had a weaker faith. And instead of praying, Sarai started scheming. Instead of praying, Abram started listening to Sarai. And what did Sarai say? Well, she basically said to her husband, let's overcome the problem of God with the power of man. That, in effect, is what she says in verse 2 and what Abram adopts. But Sarai had things exactly backwards, didn't she? She should have said, let's overcome the problem of man with the power of God. You see, when she says that the Lord has made me barren, she has spoken the truth if, she's, if we are only thinking of divine sovereignty. But that is not what she is thinking. She should have said, Adam and Eve, our first parents, have brought sin into the world and my womb is not working. The curse has made me barren. She should have said, let's overcome the problem of man with the powerness of God. Barrenness is a condition due to the fall of man. But Sarai wanted to overcome the fall by her own ingenuity, by her own resources. She does not pray. She does not seek the Lord in any way. Why? Because she wants her solution to be the solution. She wants her solution to be acceptable. She wants the Lord to bless her plan, even though it is not his plan. Beloved, that's often how we do our business with the Lord, isn't it? Lord, bless me, but don't command me. Lord, bless what I've set out to do, but don't change it. Lord, don't, don't shepherd me in a way that puts me in a box of affliction. Keep me on the road of prosperity. Now, Sarah, I could have waited in her barrenness. But as she thought about that for the 10 years they were in Canaan, she started thinking about solving the problem. She probably even told herself that to remain a childless family would be selfish of her and far too passive of her. After all, she had this resource at hand, her female Egyptian servant. So as Sarah thought all about what she could do, she slowly stopped thinking about what God could do and about what God was doing with her in her barrenness. And somewhere in that thinking, she slipped into thinking her barrenness was not from the Lord to display his glory, She came to think that it was from the Lord to display her cleverness and her generosity and her wisdom and her determination and her grit. Do you remember the disciples finding a man who had been born blind and asking our Lord Jesus, who sinned, the man or his parents? And Jesus said, neither This man has been born blind to display the glory of God. Sarai can't even imagine that's why she's barren. So Sarai reaches for a common local custom, a custom that is well-documented and well-practiced in the ancient world where a barren wife was was legally allowed to give her maid to her husband as a second wife, if the wife was barren. If a son was born of that union, the son could be declared the heir if the husband wished it. So Sarah's plan was completely agreeable, completely unobjectionable to the customs and the laws of men, but not to the law and will of God. You know, we often, do we not, feel more comfortable with the tools of the flesh than with the tools of the spirit? We should really think about why that is. I think it's because we don't like living by faith. Faith appears foolish and slow and weak to unbelievers. And so we who are often controlled by the opinions of unbelievers, are somewhat embarrassed to live by faith. It looks sometimes too passive. It looks sometimes too needy. And that's the way it's supposed to look, beloved. So that the world doesn't boast in you, but in the God who helps, the God who hears, the God who sees. And so what do we end up doing when we Take up the tools of the flesh. We talk when we should pray. We act when we should wait. We work when we should worship. We run from duty when we should stay. And we stay near sin when we should run. You see, we don't trust the Lord too much. How much help do we need from him? Very, very much. We trust the customs of men much more, and we forget we forget that we owe our entire existence to divine creation and to divine election. How could we do anything unless God gives it? We forget also that we are reconciled to the power of God, and that's why we are so prayerless sometimes. Remember how the scriptures over and over again warn the people of God not to reach for the customs of men to execute the purposes of God. There are two words that are joined in a couplet about 40 times in the Old Testament. The one is chariots. Do you know what the other is? Horses. Some trust in chariots some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The Christian leads a supernatural life. And it gets very practical and very street level because we keep slapping our own hands from reaching for all the customs and mechanisms and cleverness that men use to get by in the world. And we pray. And we wait. And we don't solve our problems the world's way. Because we are reconciled to the power of the living God. When I was single, I wanted a wife. Maybe you can relate. When I was single, I wanted a wife. And by God's grace... He put me in a five-and-a-half-year stretch where I didn't have a single date. And yeah, I, I often checked my breath and teeth to see what was wrong. After several years of waiting, no dates, I asked my elders of the church to pray for me. And within three months, I met my wife. Little did I know that God had already solved this problem because my neighbors arranged for us to go on a date and they bought the tickets to the concert and put them in my hand when they said, we have to move out in a month because we're expecting twins and we want this to be the last great thing we do in this property. Take Jennifer out. Strangely, within 48 hours, I went back to work and I was immediately tested by the Lord. The CFO of my company, a man whose esteem I enjoyed, Said, John, come and have lunch with me today. And this is the Monday after a Friday night date with Jen. I sat across from his desk, and he said, This is kind of awkward, but you know, I go to the church, so and so. And I said, Yeah. He goes, Well, I'm, I'm wondering if you would take my daughter out on a date. And it was by God's grace only that I said, No, I think I just met my wife. Beloved, it is only by God's grace that I was constrained from reaching in those five years for worldly solutions. The Lord delivered and gave. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. Better than seeing what you want come to you is seeing the power of God. God displayed before your eyes, in your heart. It's way better. Now look, look what comes from Sarai's strategy. This is her fleshy, earthly strategy to make something happen for herself. Verse four says, and Abram went into Hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. That's Sarai. Now, what kind of success is this? Hagar conceives a child just as Sarai had planned and hoped, but suddenly, Sarai is losing many good things she previously had. She first loses the affection of her maid. Hagar, proud of her fertility, as the second wife looks with contempt on Sarai. And verse 5 says Sarai also looks with contempt on Abram. She loses the peace she had in her home. And Abram, feckless and afraid of his wife, turns his new wife, Hagar, back over as a slave to his first wife. He loses his dignity and honor. And then Sarai says in verse six, well, it says of Sarai in verse six, she dealt harshly with Hagar and Hagar fled from her. Success. The Egyptian maid is pregnant. Failure. The whole house of Abram is at war. Talk about giving birth to your own problems. Sarai, her faith so weak, so worldly at this point, she's become a master of disaster. When we abandon the way of faith, we start using people as mere tools to get what we want. We stop seeing them as people whom God placed near us so that they might taste how good it is to be among people not driven by the flesh, not driven by human scheming, but instead people start getting hurt by us. Relationships become bitter because of us. We want what we want and we find a way to take it. That, a way that is full of calculation instead of being full of God and full of waiting on God's care. And it's all because we don't think God will hear us. Now, there's one more thing to notice in verse 6. And it's that phrase, Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. That Hebrew verb, translated harshly, is a verb that just appeared in the last chapter. Genesis 15. The Lord had told Abram, your offspring will be servants in Egypt and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Afflicted is the same verb here describing Sarai's harsh treatment of Hagar. So understand what the Holy Spirit is showing us through Moses. Abram's offspring are going to be afflicted in Egypt. But look Who are the afflictors in Canaan? Abram and Sarai. They are afflicting an Egyptian slave in the land of Canaan. Their treatment of her is so bad she wants to flee into the wilderness like Israel will later want to flee. Abram and Sarai, because they are not walking by faith, they have become like what the Egyptians will be to their future offspring. Oppressors is the word your English translation uses throughout the Old Testament. Beloved, the God of Israel is way better than the people of Israel, is what we are to learn from this. The God of the Church of Jesus Christ is way better than the people in the Church of Jesus Christ. We sometimes hurt even worldlings when we don't walk by faith, but the Lord does not hurt worldlings even. The church, is a, this is another lesson we should take from these shared words in 15 and 16. The church brings persecution on the world when the church chooses to live by the flesh instead of by faith. And the church does not possess the promises because she is always better than the world. And this is the wonderful startling lesson of grace that comes out of this passage. Why does Abram possess the promises? Because he's a better man? Why does Sarai possess the promises? Because she's a better woman than the world? No, they possess the promises because God in his love and grace is determined to give those promises to them. And he's showing us even here that it is only by grace that we have the promise of eternal life. Not because we are always getting better. Sometimes we are getting worse when we put our faith on a shelf and we should tell the truth even to the world when we are getting worse. I encourage you to be careful of friends of yours perhaps or co-workers perhaps who tell you that the church should never criticize the church. The Lord right here in Genesis 16 is criticizing the church. All the prophets, the major and the minor prophets were raised up to criticize the church. And it is even said of the church in Romans 2 that the Gentiles blaspheme God because of the visible church's sins and unrepentant ways. Now what becomes of Hagar? Well, she flees. She flees from the house of Pharaoh. Nope, nope. I mean the house of Abram. And she heads south for Egypt. But surprisingly, the Lord visits her in the wilderness. And the Lord speaks tenderly to her. He commands her to return. And when she returns, she becomes a messenger of good news. How? Well, she comes back and tells Abram the name that he is supposed to give to the baby. Ishmael. The name is a startling message from Yahweh to Abram and Sarai. It is what they should have known about Yahweh because the name Ishmael means God hears. The prayerless couple heard a perfect message from the Egyptian maid the Gentile woman. They heard a perfect message, a message that humbled them, encouraged them, and drew them back to God because the baby's name shall be Ishmael. Look at Hagar for a moment as she is at the well in verse 7. The angel of the Lord comes to refresh Hagar with his presence with his promise. Notice several things quickly. First, the angel of the Lord is the first one in this chapter who calls Hagar by by her name. Now, the the narrator, of course, calls her by her name, but Abram and Sarai have only called her the servant. Servant, servant, servant. The angel of the Lord comes to her. He does not depersonalize her. He names her. The whole scene should remind us of our Lord Jesus finding a woman at Jacob's well at the high noon of the day, all alone in John 4. That woman at the well near the village of Sychar, she is like Hagar. Hagar, also trying to hide. And that woman at the well by the village of Sychar also discovered, like Hagar, that the Lord knew her personally. He knew how many husbands she had. He knew about the man she was now living with who was not her husband. And that woman at the well by the village of Sychar, like Hagar, also goes back home and becomes a messenger of good news, a messenger of the Lord's presence and grace among sinners. Beloved, The angel of the Lord at the well and shore is a pre-incarnate Christ. It even says as much in verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. It is Yahweh who has visited Hagar. Hagar. Notice something else. The Lord makes a promise to Hagar. She will have many offspring. And this is her reward for being a servant wife to Abram. Even though very ill-conceived, the Lord will give her a son and many offspring. And her offspring will not be part of a central thread in the line of Messiah, They will not be a redemptive offspring, but they will come forth as a testimony to God's common grace and goodness and that he heard their afflicted mother in her affliction. And also notice this. The son, you shall call his name Ishmael. And then then the Lord says to her, a little bit of the son's personality is quickly described. You see it there. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. The Lord is letting Hagar know that even though he is showing her great kindness, her offspring, these many offspring will be men of conflict men of devouring, men of hostility. And the fact that they are described as a wild donkey of a man is not to say that they are simply foolish. A wild donkey in the ancient world was an independent beast who dwelt alone in the desert. The Lord is letting Hagar know that in her offspring will be a continuation of the conflict that Sarai's and Abram's plan has brought into the home. And really, it's kind of like a second fall because Abram listens to his wife and casts darkness into his house. Just like Adam listened to Eve and ate of the fruit and brought the race of men into death. What we are meant to see by the Holy Spirit through Moses is that there's a second fall almost happening in the world because of Abram and Sarai's unwillingness to trust the Lord. But praise be to God, it is not a fall that will not be reversed in the elect of God. Now, I want to notice one more thing with you, congregation, before we get to the end of this message. In verse 13, Hagar calls the name of the Lord, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And some Christophany, a visual manifestation of the divine presence, the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Hagar and she understood what it meant. It meant that she was not lying on the sand all alone in her affliction, ignored and overlooked even by the heavens like she was ignored and overlooked by Abram and Sarai. He who dwells in the heavens visited her and made his presence known to her in her mortality And she is rejoicing with the rejoicing of faith because she knows enough that no one can see God and live. But she has seen God in some capacity and lives. She is a child of grace now. She is a child of redemption. She is another Gentile testifying to the Jews down through time that the church of God, the people of God, would never be a pure ethnic people, but they would be a people of grace visited by a mighty, loving Savior who would look upon them and hear them and deliver them from their affliction. It is a remarkable thing that so many of the Pharisees missed passages of scripture like this. Our Lord Jesus said they, they neither know the scriptures nor know the power of God, Matthew twenty two twenty nine. 29. The Pharisees could not see in their own Bibles, it's because they refused to see, they could not see in their own Bibles that the Lord was saving freely out of his electing love those who were the furthest away from his holy power and presence like Hagar. It is a gospel word to all the nations set here in Genesis 16 that the Lord will save freely those who are afflicted and crawling out upon him. You know, I want to uh, perhaps wrap this up with a strong challenge to you. When I look upon Sarai and see her prayerless, without worship, she goes to no altar like Abram has done many times. She just starts calculating and scheming and solving and reaching for customs of men. When I I look at Sarai, I am fairly confident in light of all of Scripture, especially the Psalms, that one of the driving forces that kept her from praying for God to hear her is that she did not want to be afflicted. She did not want to be in the place that Hagar is finally in when she hears a voice above her saying her name. Hagar was afflicted. In the desert, trying to get her way back to Egypt, alone, pregnant, the sun beating down on her. She was a woman afflicted. I am deeply persuaded, in light of all the Psalms, that Sarai did not want to be afflicted. Being afflicted and having to wait upon God is not the life she wanted to live but the Lord has brought her to it nonetheless through her surrogate because it is only through her surrogate, Hagar, that Sarai has been preached to again that Yahweh hears, the Lord hears, God hears the afflicted. Notice how clear the Lord makes this point at the end of verse 11. You shall call his name Ishmael, God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Beloved, when we refuse to be afflicted, which waiting will do to you? When we refuse to be afflicted, which pulling your hand back from the customs and ways of men will do to you? When we refuse to be afflicted and want to do something to solve what we think we can solve, we are refusing the sweetness of the Lord's ear and the Lord's eye. He is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to the afflicted. He is a help to those who are beaten down. He loves to draw near to those who are waiting upon him. The greatest regret I have as a father is that I reached for far too many solutions that are of this world than I did for the Lord. For some unfortunate reason, I often thought that the most important thing for my kids to think about me is that I was a super strong Christian instead of a deeply needy and afflicted, desperate Christian. And in a way, it was their father who may have obscured to them the only way we can come to Jesus Christ. Deeply afflicted and desperate, If it is any help to you today, do not be ashamed to be afflicted. Do not be ashamed that you might have five, ten, twenty things on your list that you are waiting on the Lord for and praying for and saying no to the ways of the world to solve. Do not be ashamed that you are in that place. That's where the Lord meets with us. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would teach us what you have designed here to teach first to Abram and Sarai. Oh, Father, we thank you that Hagar went home knowing that you had your eye on her, knowing that she had your ear in that hot house of war. We thank you that she went home and you sent her home and she gave the name. And Abram confirmed it was from the Lord by giving it to the baby. We thank you for this, Lord, because we can hear it as Hagar reaches his door and says, God hears. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would remember this, especially when we are waiting upon you, especially when it seems that the vault of heaven is closed. We pray that we would believe your word and not our feelings. Oh, Lord, give us grace for this. And we thank you and praise you for a Savior who looks upon the miserable, who looks upon those who are even greatly weighed down by their sins, greatly afflicted by their weakness to overcome them, greatly weighed down by their guilt. He even hears the worst of sinners. Oh Lord, we thank you for testifying to these things in your church, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.